If you are joining us here this morning for the first time or for the first time in a while, we are in a new series on prayer. And oftentimes we preach exegetically through books of the Bible or through passages where we take a passage, one passage, and we really dig into it. Um, in this series, we're really bouncing around and jumping around a lot. So if you are a note taker, you may want to have a pen handy or your note app on your phone or something and uh, not your football app. Uh, and maybe want to jot down some of these references because we're going to kind of move quickly through some of this material here today. What we started out talking about last week is that lots of people have questions about prayer, which is maybe part of the reason why so many people um, know they should pray more, like prayer should be a bigger part of their life, but it just isn't, and, and they wish. I wish I had a stronger prayer life than I do, and maybe some of you feel the same way. And some of these questions... Um, really tie into, I think, their underlying, oftentimes not stated, but they kind of roll around in the back of your mind and, and make you wonder, why do I really even need to pray, Pray right? Why, why pray when God knows everything? It's a good question. Um, is prayer even really necessary, right? How about, you know, we know from the New Testament that God wants people to be saved, and yet, why are, so why are we called to pray for the salvation? Why doesn't he just, you know, save them. Why, why do we have to pray about it? Or some of you, maybe you've wondered, why does it seem like prayers take so long to get answered? Probably every one of you, you have a friend, and it's like they pray about the silliest little things, and like, boom, God answers their prayer, right? You know, they're like, I was just running late to work, and I had to get my latte on the way, and I prayed, and no one was in line at rush hour at Starbucks, and you're like, are you serious? I'm like praying about serious stuff here. We got like crises in the family and God's answering your prayer right then, Starbucks, latte. And me, I've been praying about this for six months and nothing's happening, right? Those are questions we have, aren't they? And then what about spiritual warfare? You know, if Satan is defeated and Christ has all authority, which we know from the scriptures, why does the New Testament make it clear that we're still in a spiritual battle and how does prayer affect all that? And then what about praying for protection? How many of you have ever prayed for protection for you or a family member? Yeah, pretty much all of us, right? In fact, there's all kinds of stories about people being woken up in the middle of the night just with this burden to pray for someone. I've told this story before, but it's been a while, so you might remember it. It happened to my dad back in the 70s. He was a college professor up in Alaska at a little college up there. Um, but as he's praying, in his mind's eye, he sees this picture, like big screen TV in his mind. Um, this is before the days of big screen TVs, but big screen TV in his mind, which, by the way, I think is a really good uh, argument for, for men that God is interested in big screen TVs. I don't know. Just <laughs> if you want to use that one, you can use this story this Christmas. Um, but he sees this big screen TV with the words, pray for Robert. Pray for Robert. And so he prays for Robert, obviously, right? And Robert's one of his students that he knows uh, from one of his classes. Well, come to find out just a short time later, he talks to another professor, and this professor also saw the same thing, but the message on the big screen TV said, go see Robert. And so he also, this other professor, obeyed. He went and saw Robert, and Robert was locked in his dorm room with the gas pipe off 
in a situation where he was, you know, getting ready to do something irreversible that probably wouldn't have just taken him out, but would have taken out a good share of other people as well. And so this college professor was able, able to, to meet with them, talk him off the ledge, and really help him in that situation. It's like, whoa, that's crazy, right? And so sometimes it's like dramatic things like that, and you pray, and God works in this amazing way, and you find out later. In fact, I did a survey last night. It was pretty cool. Um, let's just do a little survey. Um, how many of you have, have had a situation where you've been burdened in a moment to pray for someone or a situation, and you later found out that there was something going on at that time? Like, hmm, that's too strange for coincidence kind of thing. Raise your hand and keep it up for a second. Raise it high. Now look around the room. That's like all, most of us. And the same thing last night. It was crazy. In fact, right after service, uh, Roseanne, a, a lady that comes here that's known me since I was like that high, right? Uh, she came up and told me stories of her son, Mark, who was uh, deployed over in Iraq. And time after time, she'd be woken up in the middle of the night with this burning, you know, this burden to pray for him, so much so that she'd start writing down the times, and then when she'd talk to him, she'd say, hey, what was going on at this time? And there was a specific dangerous event happening that God protected him from. Crazy stuff, right? Crazy stuff. And lots of you have stories like that. In fact, you should send me some of them, because I love having stories from not just like, hey, this missionary book, but stories from people I actually really know. And, and so if you would email me, that would be awesome. If you have some cool stories, I'd love to hear some of your prayer stories and the ways God's moved. But, so we know God does that. But the question is, I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about this, is like, what's going on with that whole thing, right? Why does God need or want you to pray for somebody's protection? Have you ever thought that through? Like, is he just wanting to inform you that he's aware of the issue so that after he solves it, you go, oh, that was God, and God was aware? And if that's the case, why couldn't he just wake you up, not in the middle of the night, because your kids are already doing that, right? Why couldn't he wake you up a little earlier and just give you the heads up? Why does he need you to pray about it, right? Have you ever thought about that? Why does God need you to pray about that? He could just wake you up, hey, I'm going to do this, and you're like, cool, I'll note that down. And go back to sleep. Or... Is there something deeper going on? Is there some deeper reason why you were called to pray? Are, are your prayers, are my prayers actually doing something? Are they actually part of the process? And last week we started with this verse, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, that you've probably heard, and we put it up here just to make you all feel guilty. It says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. In fact, I showed you five different English translations of this, just in case you didn't understand this one. And they all mean the same thing, right? Don't stop praying. Be in this continual attitude and heart of prayer. Pray without ceasing. And what we said last week, and I think it, it holds true, is that we all know we should pray more. Prayer should play a greater role in our life, right? You all know you should pray, but so many times, have you noticed that should isn't a very good motivator? I picked on the kids last week and said, what's your least favorite answer when you, when you ask your parents why? Because I said so, right? I use that one regularly. And sometimes God asks us to do things where we just don't know why, the why behind it. But typically, he knows God's a good father. He knows that that's not the best motivator. 
you learned at some point that the stove was hot and you understood the why behind it and you quit touching a hot stove, right? It probably only took you once. I remember my uncle John uh, growing up, he had a, uh, this was always the story my dad would tell us to scare us because we'd, we'd shoot rubber bands at each other, have rubber band wars. And Uncle John um, had this eye that when he was a kid, got hit by a rubber band and he walked around like this for the rest of his life, All right? He's like, hey, don't shoot at the head, Uncle John. <laughs> I understood the why, right? <laughs> Consequently, I'm like the, the eye protection, you know, Nazi around my house when it comes to like Nerf guns. I'm like, put on your glasses. But when you understand the why, it makes a huge difference, doesn't it? And God knows that. And in scripture, he gives us an incredible amount of insight into the why. And so today we're going to dig into a little bit of the why. We're going to try to take a stab at a really big question that is at the root of a lot of these other questions. And that is, the question, is prayer even really necessary? If God is sovereign, why should I pray? We know from Scripture God is sovereign, that he accomplishes what he wants when he wants, as evidenced in all kinds of fulfilled prophecies. So if God is sovereign, why pray? Why pray? Obviously, you know, we know we pray because we want things and we ask God for those. But when it comes to God's bigger purposes in people's lives and in this world, why do we need to pray? Does prayer actually even matter? And so I think if you would ask, well, I know, if you would ask James, the brother of Jesus, he would go, absolutely prayer is necessary. We showed these two scriptures last week just briefly. We're going to dig into them a little bit more today. James, the brother of Jesus, he says this, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then he he brings up this story from the Old Testament, this account, biblical historical account of the prophet Elijah, one of the super prophets, famous prophets from the Old Testament. And here's what he says about the situation that Elijah was in. He says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. I mean, you know, just don't think because he's legendary in our, in our culture that he was different from you. He was a human being just like we are, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. And so let me just do a quick quiz. When it comes to this situation, who is James, the brother of Jesus, saying what what resulted in these things happening? The prayer of Elijah, right? That, That his prayer was directly related to these things occurring and happening. Now, I want to flash back to 1 Kings 18 and actually look at a little bit more of this story because I think it's really interesting. So to set it up, Elijah super prophet. He comes before. God commissions him to go stand before this wicked king, King Ahab, married to Jezebel, who none of you named your daughters after, right? Ahab, horrible, wicked king, led the people of Israel into all sorts of idolatry. And he gets to deliver the message from God of, you're going to have a drought in the land until I say so. As long as, until my word, Elijah says, this, there will be no rain on the land. And that's exactly what happens. Three years into this, it gets so bad, we'll see, or we won't 
read it today, but if you want to go on and read the rest of this chapter, you'll see King Ahab sends his servant out just to scour the land and see if there's grass or anything anywhere so that he can um, just keep the animals alive so they won't have to, to kill him. I mean, in this culture, we think no rain, and it's like, man, I can only water my lawn once a week. But here, it, it's a total economic shutdown. I mean, it's, it's a dire situation. And so, it says this in 1 Kings 18.1, After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. So just quiz here, what does God say? Whose idea is it to send rain on the land? This isn't a trick question, thank you. <laughs> They're like, I don't know, we're not going to answer this question. He's trying to trick us. No, it's God's idea, right? It's God's initiation. He says, I want you to go give this message to King Ahab. I am going to send rain on the land. It's God's idea, it's God's initiation. And so now we're going to skip 40 verses ahead. And over the next 40 verses, um, Elijah meets Ahab and says, gather up all the people because it's time. He talks to all the people. He says, hey, decide now. Are you going to serve the one true God or are you going to serve the Baals, this idle demon who isn't even real? And they just kind of stand there like sheepishly, like we're not going to answer that question. We don't want to commit, you know. And so he goes, okay, I got an idea. Gather all these prophets, 450 prophets of Baal. You guys set up an altar over here on, on the mountain. I'll set up one altar over here. You guys pray first, and then I'll pray. And whatever God answers by fire and you know, lights the sacrifice, he's the one true God. And people go, good idea. And so all the prophets of Baal, it's really funny. Uh, they, they set this whole altar up, and they, they dance, and they chant, and they get all worked up, and they end up slashing themselves, and Elijah's just over here taunting them, right? Hey, maybe he's asleep. Shout louder, you know, so they work it up a little more. Hey, maybe he's on the toilet. Literally, you should read your Bible. It's really funny. There's some great, I mean, you're like, I thought the Bible was boring. Uh-uh. You should read it. Basically, long story short, nothing happens, right? And then Elijah says, pour all this water on on." the altar of God over here. Uh, oh, not, it's not enough. A little bit more. Okay, everything's soaking wet. And then he prays a short little two-sentence prayer. And poof, God sends fire from heaven, consumes it all. And the people in this moment realize that the one true God is the one true God. And it's this amazing scene, right? And so right after that, in verse 18, chapter 18, verse 41, it says this. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So in the spirit, he senses that God is getting ready to fulfill his promise and send rain. And so Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Caramel. He bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Now, what did James say that Elijah is doing? Praying earnestly, right? Praying earnestly. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing about this, this little phrase here. This is the posture of prayer. But even more than that, this is the posture, um, scholars think, in, in ancient Hebrew times, that Hebrew women would, would give birth in. And so it's like he is fervently praying and almost, in a sense, trying to give birth to something in the spiritual realm. 
I tried this at home to see what posture this might be. I won't demonstrate here this morning. (laughs) But basically, this is a posture of fervent prayer. This is known as travailing in prayer. If you go read about some of the great prayer warriors who would just travail in prayer. This is the posture. So he is fervently praying. And this isn't just a short little, you know, 30-second prayer either. Check this out. He tells his servant, verse 43, go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. And he went, went and looked. Comes back, um, there's nothing there, Elijah. I don't know, prayer's not working. He tells him, go back again. In fact, seven times Elijah said, go back. Seven times. Guy runs over. You know, we don't know how long it took him. We don't know exactly where Elijah was, but it probably took him a little while to go walk over to where he could have the overlook point. Come back. Elijah's still fervently praying. Anything happening? No, nothing, right? Okay, go back. He, he's fervently praying seven times. Seven is, in Hebrew thinking, is the number of completion, right? Not that the number is that significant. The point is he didn't give up, right? He prayed until the answer came. Seven times Elijah said, go back. Verse 44, the seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. You know, it comes back. Um, yeah, I see like, there's like this little wispy thing. It's just kind of this little wisp. I, I don't really think it's anything. It's like as small as a man's hand. But Elijah knows as small as this appears, this is the answer to prayer that God is giving. He knows that it's beginning, it's starting. This is the answer to prayer. And so Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Verse 45, meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain started falling and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. And then this is a interesting little point because the power of being in intense prayer, the power of being in prayer, look what happens in Elijah's life here. Then the power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Isn't that interesting? So why did Elijah need to pray when God had already ordained that he would send the rain? You ever thought about that? See, it seems like Elijah didn't struggle with the whole question that so often trips us up, like, well, if God knows everything, why pray? If God said he's going to do something, why, why pray about it, right? It seems like Elijah understood that even though God had decreed and ordained this, that he still had a responsibility to partner with God in praying for it to bring it to pass. And not just praying, but fervently praying, travailing in prayer, and persevering until the answer came. And so today, what I want to give you as we go through the rest of what we're talking about is three different things that I think are keys to understanding this and kind of helping you understand the why behind why is prayer such a big deal to followers of God. I mean, all through the scripture, you can't deny prayer is a big deal. Prayer is a big deal. Why is prayer such a big deal? And so to understand it, we got to, we got to first go back to God's original design and creation. And if you're taking notes, the first reason 
why I think to help understand the why prayer is such a big deal is this, that God's plan for his world has always been to work through human stewardship. His plan for his world has always been to work through human stewardship. If you're taking notes, just jot these down because I just want to quickly run through these. But Genesis 1, 27, so God created mankind in his own image. So when you see this idea of God's image, it really is, this is the Hebrew word, and it involves the concept of a shadow or a phantom or an illusion. Obviously, humankind has, is, is a spiritual being, not just a physical being, not that our physical bodies are, you know, look like God, but the spiritual being that humanity is. But it's more than just that. It carries the idea, essentially, that humanity, that Adam, is God's representative here on earth. He's put here, originally, to represent God here on earth as the go-between between God and creation. In fact, Psalm 8 un- unpacks this a little bit. And the psalmist writes about this very thing. He says, when I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. And that carries the idea of weightiness in Hebrew. You've given them significant weightiness. Humanity has a significant weight here on this earth, right? You made them rulers Over the works of your hands, you put everything under their feet. See, Scripture teaches that Adam and his descendants were God's managers here. God's stewards. How many of you have heard the the word stewardship? You've heard it, right? Stewardship. We are placed on creation as God's stewards. He is the owner. We are only the managers, right? Almost as like as God's governors here as God's mediator or representative or go-between between God and creation. That's what God placed us here for. In fact, Psalm 115 says this, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given, or probably better translated, assigned, not that he's with, given up ownership, but that he has assigned management to mankind. Genesis 2, it says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This idea of taking care of it, being a steward, being a watchman. That that's the point. And see, God's good plan for his creation has always been, from the very beginning, to work through human stewardship. That God's primary means of working in this world after he created humankind and put the breath of life into him, created all of creation, was then to place man as the steward and his primary agent of working in this world. Now, I I was thinking through this as I was prepping the talk and sitting around with Winston, our worship pastor, and my wife Elizabeth, and going, can you think of one example? And maybe you can email me if you can, right? Can you think of one example in Scripture after God creates humankind of something significant, some significant work he does that is not done through a human? And we sat around scratching our heads going, gosh, I, I can't. 
Now, he does, not that he doesn't. See, God created the rules that he set up, which means he can break them too from time to time, right? And so at one point, he chooses to speak through a donkey. So he can do whatever he wants. He can move in whatever way he wants. But the point is, primarily, as you look through the arc of history, God has chosen to work through the stewardship of humans. See, but what happens immediately, we know in Genesis 3, is sin enters. The the good stewardship of mankind is broken by the fall. And the relationship between God and humankind is broken and marred by the fall. In fact, it's so interesting, but there's this concept you see throughout Scripture that man actually hands his authority over this worldly realm or the dominion over to Satan. Both in a moment when Adam and Eve sin. But then throughout the course of history, as each human being sins and worships creation, the created rather than the creator, as Paul says in Romans, right? This ongoing process of handing that stewardship, dominion over to Satan. In fact, check out what Jesus says when he's being tempted by Satan. It says this in verse 5 of Luke 4. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, it's interesting is Jesus doesn't contradict him here. He's not like, you don't have any authority. In fact, the big picture of Scripture is at the cross when Jesus gives his life and then is risen from the dead, that's when the power and the authority of Satan and his dominion is broken. Literally, we see language all throughout the New Testament. He takes the keys and grabs them back. It's violent language about what happened when Jesus dies. I mean, even the earth shakes, right? It's this powerful scene. See, the interesting thing, right after the fall in Genesis 3 is God launches his plan of redemption. And what's his plan of redemption? Through a human, right? The God-man. Jesus. That's what we're going to celebrate, what we're celebrating over this season as we lead up to Christmas. The incarnation. That God became flesh. That was necessary to redeem humankind, to bring us back into relationship, but also to repair what was broken in man's stewardship and, and Ultimately, the kingdom of God was launched and initiated when Jesus came, and it continues to grow as people believe and trust in Jesus and submit to the will of God. But ultimately, when Jesus comes again, all that is broken in this world will be restored. That's the big picture, right? But in the meantime, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and who has he put on earth as his representatives? Okay, who has he put on earth? Let's raise your hand if you think you might be part of that. Okay, yeah. His church, his gathering, his movement, his assembly, we are placed on earth as his representatives in this world. You've heard maybe the phrase, we are his hands, we are his feet, right? We are his prayer warriors. And so... God's plan for this world has always been 
to work through human stewardship. That's the first thing. If you're taking notes, the second thing is this, that our prayers are a primary means that God uses to bring about his ends. Our prayers are a primary means. Now, it doesn't mean God can't work outside of our prayers. He is sovereign. He's all-powerful. But our prayers are a primary means that God uses to bring about his ends. In Scripture, we see two important concepts. And it's a little tricky because oftentimes we, we bring the two together in the English when in the Greek language, they're a little bit different. There's these two Greek words for God's will. One of them is thelema, and the other one is bulema. And in Scripture, we see both God's revealed will or his desire and also his sovereign purpose or his plan. Thelema, which refers to the word conveys the idea of desire or a heart's desire. We see it 62 times in the New Testament. Bolema is 12 times in the New Testament, and it refers to his purposes, his plan, his, the counsel of God. So in Isaiah, we see the first, we, we see that idea of, of bolema, the purpose and the plan, God's sovereign purpose in this earth. And here's what it says in Isaiah 46.10. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. In other words, I am the sovereign God, says God. When I set something in motion, nothing can stop it. And we see this all throughout Scripture, right? We see right after, right after the fall that he sets into motion the plan of redemption. Through Abraham, he's going to work through Abraham to bring blessing to all the nations that, that it'll be through Abraham the Messiah, the Redeemer, comes. And then we see him as he, as he narrows down the line of Messiah. It's really this interesting study through Scripture. To the house of David. And he says the, the Messiah is going to come through the house of David. And then there's this sort of scene behind the scenes in all the Old Testament of Satan trying to take out the line of David. In fact, uh, about a year and a half ago, we, we studied this obscure little passage in Chronicles where we saw it was down to one person, one person. And this courageous, brave woman saves this young king. He saves his life in the line of the Messiah Continues, And so the idea is Satan's going to fight against this, but God's sovereign purpose and plan is to bring the Redeemer through the house of David. Nothing's going to stop it. At the exact right time, God comes to this earth, and the Son of God comes in the form of a human, takes on, he becomes, he's the God-man, 100% God, 100% human. Can we comprehend that? No, that kind of blows our minds, right? Jesus said, I will Build my church, my ecclesia, my gathering, my movement, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And here we are 2,000 years later worshiping him as part of the fulfillment of that. Nothing can stop it, right? And then Jesus said, I will come again in Scripture. Nothing can stop that either. And so God has his sovereign purposes and plans. And so what you see in Scripture is this idea of God's sovereignty, but you also see this idea of God's will that conveys the idea of the things that are God's heart, his heart's desire. And see, man is able to resist the, the will, the philemma, the desire of God oftentimes. But whatever God determines in you know, his counsel, his sovereign plan, is, it can never be prevented from fulfillment. But in Matthew 6, we see Jesus instructs us 
in the most famous prayer ever, right? He instructs us to pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And even in the Lord's prayer, there's a recognition that not everything that happens on earth is the will, the the philemma, the desire or heart of God, right? There are lots of things that happen that break the heart of God. Lots of you have, have struggles. Lots of you have family situations that break your heart that also break the heart of God. God sees those things. He cares about them. God has a desire for the way you would live your life, walking in his spirit, in his ways, but you can resist the will of God. You can live your life and your moral life and in greed and whatever area in a way that resists his revealed will and the things that are on his heart, right? And so Jesus teaches us to pray, your will be done, Lord. Oh, God, will we pray that your heart's desires and as people enter your kingdom and become part of your kingdom through faith in you, would we be the ones that more and more as the church follows you closely by your spirit, that, that there'll be less and less things that break your heart in this world. That's the heart of this. Now, let me dig in. I've got a quote for you. How many of you know who C.S. Lewis was? He was like one of the premier minds of the last century, one of the great thinkers. So he's, he's working on reconciling. Okay, well, if God knows everything and God is sovereign, no, nothing happens outside of, you know, at least him permitting it to happen, not that he causes everything directly. God does not cause people to sin. How does this all work out, and how does this come together with prayer? And here's what he says. C.S. Lewis says this. The event in question, talking about what you're praying about, has already been decided. In a sense, it was decided before all worlds. But one of the things taken into account in deciding it, and therefore one of the things that really cause it to happen, may be this very prayer that we are now offering. My free act of prayer contributes to the cosmic shape. That contribution is made in eternity before all worlds, but my consciousness of the contributing reaches me at a particular point in the time series. Everybody like, right? Mind blown got to stop and chew on that one for a while, right? So he's trying to work out, how does this all work? This is what C.S. Lewis says. Here's the best I can figure out on all this. Um, John Wesley, another great man of God, an incredible prayer warrior. He said this, and it's such a, a strong statement. I'm like, I'm not sure I agree with it, but it's so interesting I need to wrestle with it. He says this, God does nothing on earth save in answer to believing prayer. God does nothing on earth save in answer to believing prayer. So you got to ask this question about life. Does God want the world in the condition it's in? The obvious answer is you look at scriptures, no. Then why is it still in this condition? Is God powerless? No, we know that. Perhaps he's waiting for human beings to intervene, to be his hands, to be his feet, to be his prayer warriors. 
Perhaps humans have more to do with the whole thing than we actually realize. Perhaps prayer is something more than just like telling God already what he already knows, right? Jesus says he already knows your request before you ask him, but what does he want us to ask? Um, There's this other obscure passage. How many of you have heard the phrase, stand in the gap? Stand in the gap. There's an old song by an old Christian rock band, 80s hair, good stuff, right? Petra, stand in the gap. And none of you know it. (laughs) Few of you. Us like old church nerds know it, right? So. The idea is God is looking for someone to be a go-between in prayer. Here's here's what he says in Psalm 106, 23. He's summing up this event that happens in Exodus where basically because of their idolatry, the people of Israel who God has rescued out of Egypt tick God off so bad that God tells Moses, I'm done with these people. Let's start again with you and we'll just start a new nation with you which would have still fulfilled all of God's prophet, prophecies, right? Because through, you know, Moses was a descendant of Abraham. It could have still worked out. But Moses prays and intercedes. and says, no, no, don't do that. Here's what it says in Psalm 106, 23. It says this, so he said, God said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach or stood in the gap before him. So there's a, and actually, if you go back and read the conversation, Moses basically says, okay, God, um, you know, we could do that, but think of, it, think of your reputation. All these people over here are going to say, God just brought them all out in the desert to kill them off. That's, you're not going to look very good. It's an interesting scripture, right? Interesting scripture. Now, I think God also intended Moses to intercede because his heart was to have mercy in the situation, right? But Moses' intercession, the psalmist tells us, actually played a significant role in changing the course of history. Now, check this out. In Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, using the same language, says this, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. Using the same language that the people of Israel would go, oh yeah, this is, this is the Moses story where he interceded. The prophet, God speaks through the prophet and says, I looked, my heart was for mercy and compassion, but my justice, God's justice, could not allow this idolatry and sin to go unaddressed. Which is the same reason why God, when we think about heaven and hell, God's justice requires that sin be punished. His mercy wants to see all people be saved through Jesus, right? And he said, I looked for somebody to stand in the gap that would intercede on behalf of these people, and I found no one found no one. Sam Storms, who's a reformed um, scholar, a little different perspective than me, but here's what he says that I think is interesting. He says this, we must never presume God will grant us apart from prayer what he has ordained to grant us only by the means of prayer. 
Did you catch that? There's things that God has promised, but we shouldn't just assume that we're going to get them if we don't pray because God has not only ordained what he said is going to happen, but he's ordained the means that it will happen, and that means is prayer. And what does that mean in this whole big picture? That means your prayers are much more significant than you maybe ever imagined. And here's my hope and prayer for our church, that when God looks for someone to stand in the gap for our coworkers, for our family members, for our friends, for the tragic situations, for our schools, that his indictment of our church and, and us as a community would not be, I looked for someone to stand in the gap for them. But it'd be, I found them. I found someone to stand in the gap. That's my hope. Maybe this series can help us become that as a church. A people, a praying people. Which brings us to our, our last point. And if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. Prayer is God's invitation for you to step in and powerfully influence lives. You have the ability to influence the life of any person you choose. That should blow your mind a little bit. Because I know you're complaining about some people. Me too, right? I know there's some celebrities that you just think, maybe some politicians, you're like, I just can't believe. I just can't stand. Um, this whole thing with Kanye West, it's like, I wonder who is praying for him. It's pretty crazy to watch all this stuff. I mean, if you don't know who Kanye West is, ask your grandkids. <laughs> they will know. Who's praying for him, right? You have the ability to step in and influence the life of any person you choose towards Jesus. That's a better motivator than should have, isn't it? And ought to. And here's, we brought up the scripture, but I want to read it again because I think it's so powerful. Paul says this, I, I urge then, that first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And here's the motivation. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And here, here's something to wrestle with. Can God get the job done without you? Yes, obviously. He's God. Will he? And, and as I study scripture, and as I study some of these passages, here's what I think. There's the distinct possibility that there will be people who miss out on all that God has for them if you are not obedient to pray when God prompts you to pray. If you are not obedient to stand in the gap for people. There's a quote by a scholar named S.D. Gordon. He says this, you can do more than pray after you pray, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. That prayer should always be our go-to in situations in our life. Prayer should always be the go-to. Prayer is God's invitation for you to step in powerfully and influence lives. So let me just ask you, as we close, who, who is he calling you to influence through prayer?
Who is he tapping on your shoulder and saying, I want you to pray for them? Uh, the same friend of mine that told this story last night told me another one this morning. She said she had another time where she just felt the, the prompting to go see somebody. And she didn't. And she found out a short time later that that person in that very situation made an attempt to take their life. Now, she wasn't successful in that attempt, thank God. But that's a regret she has. It's so important to be obedient when God taps us on the shoulder, to be obedient in that situation. And this isn't a guilt thing, because I know that could be where you go, right? Guilt of the times that you have, have had a, a lousy prayer life in a season or the times where you've not obeyed the prompting that God's told you to do. This is a, man, from this point on, what if this became the beat of your heart? What if when God taps you on the shoulder and that thing comes like pray for so-and-so or pick up the phone and call so-and-so, what if you did it? What if you really stood in the gap? Who's he calling you to do that for today? And as, as we close, I just want to take a moment and well, we're all seated. That for some in the room, your response it isn't to just start praying for other people. Your response is to respond to Jesus and put your faith and trust in him. For some of you, you haven't given your life to Jesus yet, but you're checking him out and you're here in our midst and I want to say we've been praying for you. And I believe that you may be here as a result of those prayers because God wants you. He wants your heart. He wants you as part of his family. And so let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. And if that's you in the room, I want to give you a chance to respond to Jesus right now and the work that he did in God's great plan of redemption and pray a prayer like this after me. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you're the son of God that you died and rose again. I know I'm a sinner and I cannot make it to you on my own. I turn from my sin and turn to you. Forgive me. Welcome me into your kingdom and your family. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.